0: Well, good morning once again, and uh, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 24 to 37, but before we get to the, to the text, before we get to the sermon, I, I wanted to share a little bit of my heavy heart this morning. Like many of you, <clears throat> I'm deeply moved and deeply disturbed by the brokenness of our nation and world. In particular, I'm grieved by the tragically regular and horrific violence perpetrated Against people of color throughout our history and our nation, uh, that has just recently unfolded again in front of us over these past days and weeks. And I don't, I don't know how to make sense of it. I don't know what to do about it. And I realize that my words may fall insincere on those most affected by racial injustice. And I also realize that it may fall as political by others or some sort of virtue virtue signaling by others. And and honestly, I, I don't know my deeper motivations. <laughs> After all, the heart is deceitful above all things. <clears throat> but my conscience is stricken by God that I must speak. And so I pray that you would be gracious as I just say just a few things and I unburden my heart to you. Our nation is in flames. It's been teetering on the edge for some years, and I don't know where it goes from here. I simply grieve and cry out for God to have mercy. But I do know where we go as God's people, as CCPC. And there are three places. There's more. We could talk at length about these things, but there are three that I just want to highlight briefly. First, we go to our knees in prayer. We cry out to God for mercy. He alone can break down the dividing walls of his hostility that exist within our world, particularly within our nation, because he has broken down the wall of hostility that rent heaven and earth. It is not too small a thing for him to do. And so we cry out for him to have mercy and preserving grace on us as a nation, that the walls of hostility would be broken down. That's for us to do as the Church of Christ. Secondly, as the Church of Christ, we actively humble ourselves before God and one another. As Paul says in Philippians 2, we are to consider others as more significant than ourselves. That means putting our concerns aside and putting others' concerns before our own. And this applies to the deep Grief and pain that our African-American brothers and sisters across this land are feeling right now. Wherever we fall on the political spectrum, as Christians, we are called to come alongside and mourn with those who mourn. Finally and thirdly, this is just a call to love. Matt said it well. Reminding ourselves that God first loved us. So we're to love one another. Love for the broken sinner. Love for the lost. And ultimately, love for God. It's my plea. We're going to go to read God's word now. And look at the text before us. Hear God's word. This is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 24 to 37. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he didn't want anyone to know that he couldn't be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on them. On him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. And he said to him, Ephthaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that you would reveal to us anew, afresh, your love and mercy. That you would show us your grace in the text, that your spirit would apply these truths to our hearts and that we would be renewed and restored in the gospel. Lord, help us, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. I do think it is a providential thing that this particular passage came today. In fact, I thought for a brief moment to call an audible and preach from a different text. But the more I delved into this passage, the more I realized This is the medicine that God has prescribed for us today. For underlying this passage, both in the case of the Syrophoenician woman, as well as the man who is deaf and who had a severe speech impediment, there is a deep underlying problem of a division, a dividing wall. Last week, we looked at how the Jewish leaders were incensed because Jesus' disciples would not follow the ritual cleansing laws. The most important thing to them was making sure that they had not defiled themselves by coming in contact with anything or anyone that was unclean. And they made every attempt to make sure that they were set apart holy. Of course, Jesus pointed out that defilement does not come from without, but from within our own hearts. The Pharisees and scribes, avoided the unclean, like we vo- avoid the coronavirus. And who were the unclean? Certainly the Gentiles, and certainly this demon-possessed girl. In fact, the parallel account in Matthew describes the demon as an unclean spirit. And while they might not be unclean in that same way, the deaf or mute fell into the category of of blemished in the mind of the religious leaders. In fact, there was Old Testament stipulation that prevented any member of Aaron's household, that is the priestly line, it prevented anyone who had any sort of physical disability, including blindness and deafness, from serving as priests in the temple, from going into the house of God. And of course, those stipulations were ordained by God and were to remind the people of the spiritual brokenness and the defilement in the heart of man. But the Pharisees and scribes missed that crucial point. And so they created walls between themselves and the great unwashed. Not so, Jesus. As we'll see in a minute, Jesus intimately and personally addresses these outsiders and outcasts. But most importantly, he draws near to them to set them free from their bondage. The daughter of the woman being bound by a demon and the deaf, mute man being bound by his physical disability. But we miss the point of Jesus entirely if we see this simply in terms of some earthly healing or the freeing of this demon possession, just in sort of earthly terms. Jesus often heals people in Scripture. He heals many people from their physical or earthly problems. But Jesus' goal is much grander. The healing of Jesus in Scripture is meant to picture the powerful kingdom of God breaking into the world to restore us and set us free from our bondage to sin and death. You see, there is a dividing wall of hostility between us and God. And that dividing wall of hostility casts a grand shadow across every person, every relationship, every broken body. And the Messiah King comes and smashes it. And this is my goal this morning, that we would, like this woman, cast ourselves at the feet of King Jesus, crying out for grace and mercy. And that we would, like this man whose ears were unstopped and whose tongue was loosed, would be compelled to sing forth the wonders of, Of Jesus, who smashes the dividing wall of hostility between us and God and sets us free from our bondage to sin. We're going to look at this in two parts this morning. First, cast yourself upon the mercy of King Jesus, who can set you free. Our text confronts us with some challenges, most Obviously, is the challenge of Jesus' word to the Gentiles, and we'll look at it uh, to this Gentile woman, and we'll look at it in a minute. Before we get there, I want to just notice a couple um, of things about the context and the setting, set the stage. Jesus and his disciples went to the region of Tyre and Sidon to retreat. This area of Tyre and Sidon is northwest of Israel along the coast. It was west of the area of Galilee where they had just been ministering for some time. And Tyre and Sidon uh, were in the ancient world some of the two most prominent Canaanite cities. They, it, I remember exactly which one, but this area was the birthplace of Jezebel. And they were particularly known... For their Baal worship. In the days of Jesus, it would have been marked by Greek speaking people of Phoenician descent. They were a seafaring, trading people. And that seems to be who this woman in particular was a part of. And I share that brief background to give you a sense of how the Jews, and particularly those religious leaders we looked at last week, would have perceived the Gentiles from this region. Nevertheless, there were Jews living in the region as well, and Jesus and his disciples were looking to get away from the crowds for a time so that they could get some respite, so that they could get some rest. The word, of course, had spread across the region, and despite their secrecy, his whereabouts became known. And so we find out that this woman, this Syrophoenician woman, hears about Jesus, and she comes bursting, Into the house where they were staying. Now, this alone was enough to cause shock. This woman, this Gentile woman, bursting into this Jewish household, this would have been enough to cause shock. But then this woman falls at Jesus' feet. She prostrates herself down at the feet of Jesus. Mark then goes out of his way to explain. That she is a Gentile woman. He says it in different ways. She says this is a Gentile woman. He says this is a Gentile woman. And she, that she is Syrophoenician. To draw out that distance that she had from the company that she was walking into. So Mark is saying something like this. If we were to put it into other words. He said, you would not believe it. But this Gentile woman from this ungodly place, busted into the house, threw herself down in front of our Lord, and begged that Jesus cast out a demon from her daughter. We'd barely even set the table for dinner. But then we come to the really hard part of the text, the dividing wall, a place in Scripture that makes us squirm. Jesus says to this woman, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to dogs. Now, there are two things I want to say at the outset. This is meant to be an offensive word to the woman. Secondly, it is also meant as a gracious word to the woman. And I know you're sitting there thinking, Rob, how can it be both of these things? And that's what I want to look at. Let me explain. First, there's something that mitigates against the harshness of Jesus' words a little bit. There are different words in Scripture used for the word for dog. There is a word used for dog in Scripture that refers to the kind of dog that roams the streets, a mongrel, a cur, however you want to call it, an outside dog, a mean dog, uh, a, a dirty dog. There's one word for that. And then there's this other word that's used here. It's a diminutive dog, a little dog, a household dog, a dog that would sit under the table, the kind of dog that children like to play with and feed. So there's that mitigation. It's not as harsh as it might seem at the outset. And yet, nevertheless, she is likened to a dog. And you ought not to miss that. That stands out. So what in the world is Jesus saying? What is is he about here? The children, in this case, refer to God's people, the Jews. And Jesus is saying that in a very real sense, priority is given to the Jews in terms of the offering of salvation. In fact, Jesus says as much in the parallel account in Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. He says this, he answered the woman, same story, different uh, accounting of it. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This was Jesus' mission. He spends the vast majority of his time in Israel. Paul will say it. A little differently in the in the gospel, or not in the gospel, in in the book of Romans, he says in Romans chapter one, he says, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek." Paul will go on later, as he's wrestling with this this bringing in or ingrafting of the Gentiles into the, the vine. He'll, he'll talk about this later in chapter 11, uh, and he'll warn the Gentile believers who are grafted into the vine not to boast, as they are not the vine. And they too could be pruned like unbelieving Israelites. In other words, there is, in this sense, a redemptive priority given to the Jews that Jesus is expressing in this analogy to to this Gentile woman, stating the fact. Jesus called Abraham. He chose Isaac and Jacob, not Esau. And so there's this, This division, this dividing wall that is being exposed here by Jesus. That's what he's doing. Jesus, by analogy, was meant to expose the the very real dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jew and Gentile. And it was a provocative affront that expressed the very common experience of Gentiles and Jews as they related to one another. So in this sense, in this sense, the word was meant to offend. It was meant to expose the issue. And this is the issue. There is a distance between this woman and God. She has no right by ancient covenant that would allow her, at the very least like the Israelites, to call on him as her own. She has no right. It was a word meant to expose the distance between her and Jesus. But it was also a gracious word. Jesus used this provocation provocation, to elicit from her the faith that she had already started expressing when she threw herself at Jesus' feet. It was an opportunity for this woman to express what neither the hardened heart the hardened heart the hard hardened the hard hearted scribes and Pharisees could express nor the dull witted disciples either they heirs of the covenant did not understand themselves the nature of the dividing wall they didn't get their real standing or understand that standing that they had before a living and holy and just God. That apart from the mercy of God and Christ, they also had no right to him. But this woman understood it. She understood that she had no place. She had no right to demand of Jesus anything. She understood that she did not stand in relation to him by any ancient covenant. She understood her standing before the Lord. But what she knew was that she was desperate for Jesus to smash that wall of hostility and to cast the demon out of her daughter. She knew that it would only take A small morsel. And she understood that Jesus was in fact offering her life. Even in those harsh, seemingly harsh words. Notice Jesus' words again. Maybe maybe it skimmed, you know, you you missed the, the grace there. But Jesus said this. Let the children be fed first. First. What does that imply? What, is that, what does that imply? It means that there is food for her, that there is food for those who are outside of that covenant. And the woman of faith said, I will take whatever I can get. I will eat whatever scraps may fall from your table, Lord, because I know that I am unworthy. But I know that you are good. And I know that you are able." and that in your morsel of bread contains the very power of heaven itself, and I know that my girl will be released, set free from the power of hell, even by that tiny morsel. Friends, there is hardly a more powerful example of faith in all of Scripture. An unworthy, pagan, sinful woman casting herself at the mercy of Jesus and clinging to his feet as her only hope. The Pharisees didn't get it. The disciples didn't get it. But this unclean Gentile woman humbled herself before the Lord and she cried out for mercy. And what does Jesus do? He commends her. He commends her faith. Hear these words again. He said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. He commends her faith. More often than not, we're seen with him and his disciples and how often he says to them, ye of little faith, how long are you going to go on like this? He gets exasperated with him. But in this single encounter with this woman, he commends her. As we consider all the hostility and division in our world today, we must first consider the hostility and division between us and God. For all the hostility and division in the world is a direct result of that greater division. And it is a division that is caused because of the corruption of sin in our hearts. Apart from God's grace. We have no right to approach a holy God, no right to his mercy and grace. We deserve what we have sown in our unrighteousness, but Jesus has come to smash the wall and all its corruption. And so he offers to you the bread of heaven, despite the fact that we don't deserve And it's that bread of heaven, that little morsel that is like a wrecking ball. It's a once-for-all blow. The kingdom comes with reconciliation, with restoration, with renewal and new life. Cast yourselves at the mercy of King Jesus, who can set you free. Friends, that is our call. Nothing to Christ I bring. Only to the cross do we cling. Finally, I want to close by looking at this account of the healing of the man who is deaf and who has a speech impediment. And through this story, there is a call to let your loosened tongue proclaim the wondrous good news that you have heard. That's the effect. But let's let's look at the text for a little bit. The disciples and Jesus move on from Tyre and Sidon and they head back uh, north and east through Galilee to the region of the Decapolis. Now, the region of Decapolis, as I've mentioned before, is a mixed region. And mixed, I mean that there were Jews and Gentiles living in this uh, sort of transitional area where it was sort of a crossroads of, of, the, of the region. Uh, people from all over uh, lived there and We are not certain whether this man was a Jew or not. We aren't told. Jesus speaks to him in Aramaic. Uh, We'll look at that in a minute. But um, that was a common enough language. Jews and Gentiles together would have spoken it. Um, Nevertheless, it might indicate that he was Jewish. But the man is brought to Jesus. Uh, This reminds me of that great story of the man who brought the um, the lame man through the roof, right? They, they brought their friend to Jesus. He couldn't get to Jesus easily on his own. Uh, and so they bring him and they begged with him. They begged him. They pleaded with Jesus, uh, heal this man. Are we good? All right, sorry for, for the brief uh, delay. Um, I mentioned earlier in the intro that various disabilities were looked down on by the Jews, which had its roots back in the Old Testament ceremonial law. But here was a man that was divided. He was kept out. Uh, Whether Jew or Gentile, he would not have been allowed into the temple courts, except in the very outer courts. In general, there would have been an assumption that it was some sin of his or his parents' that had caused his disability, and we aren't told anything about his disability. There seems to be some indication that he wasn't maybe uh, deaf um, from uh, his uh, youth because he had some ability to talk, uh, even if it was uh, he was disabled in his ability to talk. Uh, he had some speech impediment. Um, but he um, uh, is... Nevertheless, somebody who would have been looked down on. Now, I want to be really clear here. Deafness and blindness in the Old Testament were particularly seen as, as signs of the corrupting power of sin. But they were not sinful in themselves. Right? We have to be really clear there because I think that was the problem of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They confused the sign for the thing itself. Nevertheless, it was a sign. Being blind or deaf or mute was in some way uh, a sign of the brokenness of our condition. Not only that, but in the Old Testament, these conditions also the prophets used to liken to the hardness of our own hearts, the deafness of our ability to listen to God, and the blindness that we would have to see uh, God for who he is. Ironically, though, and this is, I think, is a good thing to point out, the prophets themselves were often pointing to the religious leaders. Not to the actual physical blind people, but to the religious leaders for their hardness of heart. But the promise in the prophets was that a Messiah would come and open the eyes of the blind and unstop the ears of the deaf and loose the tongue of the mute. And, and we see a picture of this in Isaiah chapter 35. I want to read this to you. Isaiah 35 verse 4 says this, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall there be ravenous beasts come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It's a picture. It's a picture of the restoration, the rejuvenation, the restoring of the brokenness of this world. That's what Isaiah is painting, this grand, glorious picture of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, of Jesus coming. And did you notice these last words? They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Jesus, when he met with this deaf man, he took him aside. And when he took him aside from the crowd, Privately, he took his fingers and put them into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue, and he looked up to heaven, and he sighed. Why did Jesus sigh? I'll come back to the touching thing in just a minute, but, but why did Jesus Jesus sighed because as he looks on the world and on its brokenness, when he sees the deaf and their inability to hear, and he sees the blind and their inability to see, and when he sees those who are mute with their inability to talk, and he sees broken sinners and their inability to love him or one another, he sighs because he sees the deep reaches and effects of sin in this world. He sighs because he knows that there is no other way than by his death that they can be redeemed. The only way for the dividing wall of hostility between God and man to be broken down was for a wall to be put up between God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the wrath of God to be poured out on him instead. So Jesus sighed. But he didn't just sigh without hope. He sighed knowing that those sighs would flee, as Isaiah says. That there would be gladness and joy in the end. And so Jesus touches his ears. A visible sign that he is unstopping those ears. He is the king, the Messiah, the one who is breaking into the kingdom, bringing the kingdom into this world and breaking down the wall of hostility. And he takes spittle spit and and you might wonder that's kind of gross right but spit we can read about it in, in Jewish literature spit was seen as, as having a healing salve to it there was there was often it wasn't completely out of the norm right but it also had direct relationship to the tongue here he's saying i'm going to recreate you like like uh, uh, like the father drawing up Adam and putting, fashioning the clay, he's saying, I'm going to take it, I'm going to make a new tongue. I'm going I'm to take your stammering tongue and I'm going to make it sing for joy. And so he touches the tongue. But that's not what healed. There's nothing magical or mystical in the touch. What healed was Christ himself. When he said these words, that is, be opened. And he looked up to heaven. He cried out to his father. And when he did this, when he cried out and he said, Be opened, the ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. The man was a picture of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, that healing that we all need spiritually. Now, what, why this word, Thopta, be opened? Well, as my intern noted, It's the same verbiage that's used about the opening, uh, the same Hebrew root in this Aramaic word that's used for opening uh, in Isaiah. Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah, and I've come to break down these walls of hostility. Now, it's interesting. Jesus goes on and he charges them to tell no one why is that? Well, scholars wrestle with this idea of the secret, um, the messianic secret that we see throughout the Gospel of Mark and some of the other Gospels. And the Commentators will point out that, that Jesus was sort of not interested in being a miracle worker for being a miracle worker's sake. He was interested in pointing people to himself as the Messiah, as the one who's come to set them free from sin and death. And oftentimes people confused the sign for the thing. Signified, right? They wanted the miracle, but they didn't necessarily want Jesus. And so he wasn't interested in garnering a following of people interested in his miracles, per se. He's interested in people following him. There's also a a, a piece of this where he is unveiling himself in his time and his way. So that by the time we get to the end of the gospel, he's unveiling himself as the one who must suffer and die. We'll even see that in the next chapter, in chapter 8. And so there is a sense in which Jesus is saying, don't, this is not my time. But here's the thing. It says that they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. They zealously proclaimed it. They couldn't help themselves. They couldn't help themselves. And and this is the nature of Christ's work. When he he enters into our life and he transforms our hearts and he makes us new, He, he takes that heart of stone and gives us that heart of flesh. He regenerates us and gives us a heart that beats for God, that can't help but declare the goodness of God. He does all things well. He has even redeemed me from my sin. Friends, do you know the powerful working of God? Have you experienced that that transformation of the heart? If you have not, this is an opportunity to look to Jesus, to, to throw yourself at his feet like this Syrophoenician woman, or to be brought to Jesus. You've been brought here this morning. Lay hold of him. Trust in him. Put your faith in him. For when he changes our hearts, there is nothing, nothing more wondrous and more glorious than that dividing wall being crushed and that relationship that we have now with a living God. And as those indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we are now able to, to live unto righteousness and to proclaim the goodness of God wherever we go. And we're able to be effective in helping break down other walls, humbling ourselves before one another, loving one another, praying for one another, binding ourselves together, not because of anything in us, but because of the the work that Christ has done, uniting us, redeeming us, and reconciling us to himself. All praise and glory be to Jesus. Sing his name wherever you go. Let your tongue be loosed. Let's pray.